from Moby.co, this is the Flagship Pod, a weekly live podcast about the stock market, the economy, and the various market forces powering the world around you. As always, I'm jo- I'm your host, Peter Star Northrop, bringing you this time just kind of a confusing week. The CPI came in a little harder than it should have, and we're seeing signs that inflation is stickier than it should be. So getting into the question, what is going on with our economy and how can we make sure that the Fed keeps this under control? As always, to help me understand what's happening in the economy, I'm joined by Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at Moby.co. Justin, man, great to hear from you, dude. How are you trying to parcel what's going on in the economy right now? It's kind of wild, honestly. Yeah, January was a really hot start to the year. February is starting to potentially peel back. We're getting individual earnings that are doing well, but inflation looks to be potentially riding higher. Um, You know, this is a topic we've been talking about for a while. So yeah, a lot to review today, but excited to get into it uh, as always. Hell yeah, dude. So I guess just like starting off first, we got the CPI this week, which came in a little bit higher than we wanted it to. We are still technically in a situation where inflation is going down. Inflation this month was up year over year by 6.4%. Last month, it was 6.45%. But we expected 6.2%. Then almost immediately after that, Justin, we got, you know, um, the wholesale inflation numbers where we got a bunch of things that are coming in hotter than they should. Wholesale inflation is almost double what it should have been. That came in at 0.7 when the market anticipated 0.4%. So what's going on with inflation, man? We've been kind of going through the numbers a little bit. Uh, what's making it stickier? Why isn't it going away as much? And does this kind of mean that the Fed maybe is wrong about the air quotes disinflation process starting? Yeah, so... It's an interesting kind of dynamic right now. So to your point, the disinflation process, the Fed has alluded to it. And I do think they're right. However, it is a bit misleading. And so what I mean by that is, and we've talked about this at length before, this is not necessarily just a demand side issue. So when the Fed raises rates um, and the market slows down, uh, ultimately that should bring the economy, you know, cooling it down and then bring inflation down with it. But Over the last few years, given what's going on with COVID, the supply chains, a lot of this is due to a supply side issue. And so no matter how much you raise rates until you literally crash the economy, ultimately, it doesn't really solve the core underlying problem. I mean, it does to a certain extent, but there's a large portion of it that isn't solved. And so while raising rates has clearly slowed some things down, we're still seeing prices increase. We're still seeing other things jump up. So it's it's kind of, like I said, a, a misleading statement. Having said all of that, right now, the way our energy is set up, um, ultimately, a lot of the energy that gets imported into the US uh, and globally around the world, uh, ultimately, is at risk of being stunted, given what's going on in Russia, what's going on in China, and other parts of the world. So energy is such a big part of the way things cost. Um, for example, if gas prices and oil prices are high, all the goods that got transported here will now cost more money because they're more expensive to get here. Um, so energy is kind of like this revolving circle that ultimately is impacting on the consumer side, on the wholesale side for producers, um, what the prices are going to be. So we've said this for a while now. A lot of the core underlying issues um, I don't think are going away anytime soon. Even if we transition from oil-based energy to energy that is more renewable, we will still need core commodities that ultimately are inflationary. So this just really, you know, given what the Fed's been doing over the last 10, 20 years with pumping money into the economy and artificially lowering rates is now going to be an issue that we probably have to deal with for a very long time in terms of constantly balancing, you know, inflationary aspects 
um, as well as balancing, um, <clears throat> excuse me, balancing the inflationary aspects with ba balancing the health of the economy. And I think past that, once you start bringing a lot more things onshore, which is a theme that we can dive into in a second, but once we start bringing more and more things onshore, things become more expensive. You're rebuilding supply chains, rebuilding infrastructure, and again, adding to that inflationary bill that ultimately is hitting consumers. So it's a long-winded way of saying, yes, maybe and prices are starting to come down in some areas, but by no means are we on the other side of this thing. And this is going to be an issue you know, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, there's a lot of different paths we can take from there, but I guess real quick, audience, just to clarify, too, it's one of those interesting situations where in the short term, we kind of got bailed out a little bit by global climate change and just kind of weather patterns this winter as um, we're now seeing European natural gas prices fall to an 18-month low thanks to a very mild winter. And as people sort of like think, ah, oh, it's going to get warm again, I don't need to worry about utilizing natural gas. But at the same time, we have a new kind of ban on Russia selling more oil coming in March as we're also gearing up for some big scary speech Putin is set to deliver late next week. He's kind of turned off all of Russian media until then. So our main concern is, is this offensive happening in Ukraine right now going to ramp up? Is Russia going to make a bunch of progress or what is going to happen here? Because again, one huge thing driving the supply side inflation we have is just our, our entire sort of economic order from the last 10 years just kind of breaking down a little on the back of this Russia-Ukraine conflict. So that's one thing we're going to be watching very closely. And that's one thing that keeps the market being a little cagier. Yes, inflation went down a little bit, but a lot of what's kind of driving inflation, a lot of what could potentially make inflation worse is inflation's going down because energy prices have managed to go down a bunch, but energy prices are inherently volatile. So if we have one kind of bad month or bad couple of months with just like a minor supply chain hiccup, we're going to be dealing with those inflationary issues again. Of course, other things are finally going down. Car prices are going down a little bit. Food prices are not as bad, but could be better. So a really interesting situation across the board in terms of where the market's going to go from there. But the key theme is, right, we have finally entered into the era of winners and losers. And so that's why we're going to be watching individual stock earnings uh, for the next little bit, uh, because the main thing is within these industries, you're either going to rise to the occasion of higher costs or you're going to buckle underneath them and not do so well. So this week we had a solid, solid number of winners. I guess uh, I'm just going to kind of go down the list here, Justin. I just want to get, get your... Uh, uh, your input real fast. One thing your audience has been asking us about literally for years, Justin, we haven't initiated a position yet because they've literally never been profitable until this week. That's Palantir, Justin. Um, I know it's not super on our radar, but any thoughts there on Palantir earnings finally having their first $85, uh, $35 million profit for a quarter? Um, is it time to start looking into, you know, the sort of like spy companies a little bit, or is there still some reasons we should kind of push back, you know? Yeah. So with, uh, with Palantir and some of these other companies, it's definitely interesting. Interesting. And even past Palantir, you start getting into uh, on the like defense side of the issue, like Lockheed Martin and a lot of their those companies. So we're definitely approaching an interesting area. And so with uh, Palantir in particular, they they're in a very interesting position because almost 40 percent of their revenue comes from uh, the U.S. government, which is obviously an insane amount to have one customer benefiting or sorry, contributing that much money towards uh, towards their overall revenue. Normally, that would be highly skeptical if you have, you know, one customer almost doing half the revenue. However, when it's the U.S. government, it's a little bit different of a story. They have, uh, you know, I'll say lightly, they have some pretty deep pockets. <laughs> um, so with Palantir in particular, they've always been kind of this consulting business that got valued, you know, similar to what I would say is like a tech business, even though they really weren't. 
Um, and now we're looking at their business and it's starting to transform a little bit. So what I mean by that is, like I said, they're, they're growing, their margins are increasing, um, but it is still very much at its core, a consulting business. It's still very much at its core, a business that relies on kind of one customer, if you will. But that, again, that customer is really strong. At the end of the day, I think for now, we're going to continue to probably be equal weighted, not underweighted, not overweighted, continue to, to grow. Uh, we're seeing revenue growth rates starting to decelerate a little bit. Operating margins are down a little bit, even or like from the growth perspective, still down, even though they're increasing. Um, so again, I mean, it's a long-winded way of saying, like a lot of companies in our coverage universe, we're just starting to see this potentially be a turnaround story. But they're still in an area where there's a weak macro environment. Growth rates, you know, 35% year over year are still really solid. Um, but again, something that we're going to have to hold on for to see what's going on with revenue growth going forward, um, operating margins going forward, and a lot of a lot of other things given kind of their consulting-like nature. Exactly. And it's one of those things where it's it's hard to kind of parse where that's going to go. But the main thing that's making me, you know, edge towards the bullish side of the equation is their assertion, the assertion by the Palantir executive team that the U.S. commercial segment is set to explode 30% in the next couple of years. So we'll keep an eye on it. But again, reiterating that equal weight rating, but we're going to be trying to find those different capital flows that can work better or worse for them. I think one thing that we have a lot more confidence about that we were very surprised to see the pop they had this week was Airbnb, Justin, Airbnb destroyed profit and revenue, um, and they are up 20% this week after just a gangbusters earnings call, I believe, on Tuesday. Um, is travel back? Are we totally, are we done in terms of being worried about uh, pandemic, um, what am I trying to say, reshuffles and disruptions to the travel industry? Is travel fully back? And is Airbnb going to finally resume its road to being a trillion dollar company? So travel definitely is back, uh, but it's the way it's back is a little bit different. So what I mean by that is right now airlines are really having their moment, um, but Airbnb and other hotels are starting to see a little bit of issues. And it starts, as we've been saying over the last few months, it's not necessarily, um, what's the best way to frame this? It's not necessarily something that's going to be across the industry. It's not every airline will do good and every hotel will do bad. Companies now, their business models are shining and the ones who are operating profitably or operating in a very efficient way will do well, even if their industry potentially has headwinds or tailwinds. So when it comes to the airline side of the equation, airlines are seeing ultimate like tailwinds come their way last year and this year. Um, a large reason due to that is because we're starting to see uh, on the airline side, a lot of travel from businesses pick back up. Business travel has historically been one of their largest sources of revenue growth. Um, and so we're seeing, even with high uh, oil and gas prices, starting to see a lot of that flow down to the uh, the airline side of the equation. However, when it comes to hotels, certain hotels we're looking at, we are overweight them. But Airbnb in particular, um, we are a little bit skeptical right now. Yes, they just did perform at the highest revenue quarter of all time. So it's obviously pretty encouraging. Um, but their margins are starting or their margins are flat year over year. So yeah, they're growing top line, but from a profitability standpoint, especially when everything is talking about efficiency, margins are staying flat. Um, and then ultimately, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, their supply side isn't growing as much. So it's really going to be a demand side, uh, part of the equation and with supply, given a lot of their, uh, platform is based on who's hosting supplies, only increasing 16% year over year, um, which is in kind of 
in range with their growth from last year, which again, as we're starting to come out of the pandemic, we'd want to see that a little bit higher. Um, so ultimately, we're remaining a little bit cautious. One quarter is amazing seeing such high profitability, but it doesn't necessarily change our view about a lot of these longer term supply and demand challenges. Um, and ultimately, what we want to watch for is just room night, like how many people, how many nights people are staying on average deceleration. And that's what we're starting to also see go down. And that's why margins have fell down. So again, we'll, we'll kind of continue to see and monitor Airbnb, um, but travel in general is definitely picking back up. We like the airlines, we like certain hotel stocks, but Airbnb, while we are hopeful, we are a little bit constructive. And audience, as investors, one of the critical things you have to watch as you sort of like listen to Justin and I kind of figure out what's worth an investment, what's not, what's a winner and loser in this very difficult to parse environment. One kind of easy way to watch this is to look at margins and see who is thriving under these cost conditions. And I'm going to get into a little bit on, on that in terms of the travel situation in just a moment. But before I get into that audience, I just want you to know that this podcast is brought to you by, well, us, brought to you by Moby.co. If you want to get more of our long-term perspective in terms of how we're thinking about the market for the next two, three, five years, Join us over at moby.co slash go. We have free trials available. You can get a kind of good perspective on how we're thinking long-term because you as an investor need to think long-term. So again, join us over at moby.co slash go. Ads over, trying to keep these quick with these ad reads. But the reason I bring that up, audience, is because you would have seen in our in this week's research, we brought up Disney. And the reason that we are putting out an article saying we're initiating a position in Disney and not Airbnb is because under the last like six months, Disney has found a way to post a absurd 35% margin in their parks revenue, right? They've managed to sort of curtail it, um, visitors to a certain level during peak periods to make sure they're not overloading the parks. They're making sure that they are treating high value guests super well. And they managed to pump margins to an absurd degree while, you know, making sure that they're not, you know, getting their visitors endangered with, again, you know, kind of an ongoing pandemic situation. So really awesome to see Disney just absolutely popping off on the park side, and hopefully that's going to fuel their quest to make Disney Plus profitable by 2024, making this whole streaming segment worth, worth the effort. But when you see margins like that, it's really hard to sort of pass up a, a bullish rating. But rather than make Justin comment more on Disney, let's keep rolling through sort of the winners and losers of this week. So we had Airbnb. Now we have ones that were kind of losers before that we're thinking about about maybe coming back to. First and foremost, Justin, fresh off the top of our heads, up 16% today after just blowing up revenue, solid Super Bowl and everything. DraftKings is hitting, just hit $20 a share. Um, are we thinking about, you know, kind of getting back in, averaging our position down? Or are we still kind of waiting for the sports betting market to recrystallize and maybe wait until we get a full sense of Q1 revenue from the sports betting market? So the sports betting market's interesting right now. Um, obviously, they got a lot of tailwinds from the Super Bowl. It's obviously super strong uh, when we're seeing Super Bowl betting in particular up 25% year over year since last year, which is extremely encouraging. When it comes to DraftKings, some of these other companies in particular, and you start getting into the nuances of sports gambling, it's obviously going to be a continuously growing area. Uh, we've seen a lot of these companies start to expand as states open up. They spend a ton of money to acquire users because the lifetime value of these users is so high. And so in DraftKings in particular, the stock's up huge today uh, on the heels of some pretty strong earnings. Uh, and ultimately, we are continuing to be overweight this stock, even at a high, pretty high valuation. Um, the reason being is we saw a very, very good response uh, on the fact that not only did they beat on revenue, but they also beat on EBITDA which is profitability, and then they raise their guidance for next year, and it, sorry, this year into next year, which is super important, both on the top line 
and on the bottom. Um, so bottom line, the company is really starting to be profitable. And after spending, you know, an insane amount of money to start getting market share state by state, um, we're really happy to see that they are starting to be more efficient. Um, and while, you know, again, growing the top line, $855 million in revenue in the fourth quarter, um, and then EBITDA as well, uh, starting to flip kind of, again, get more and more profitable, which which we, we want to see. So long story short, Really like, um, <clears throat> really like DraftKings. Really like BetMGM. Uh, a lot of the the gambling platforms. It's just a huge area for growth, and you're paying up for sure on the multiple. But uh, over the long run, is definitely on the risk adjusted side, very very strong. And it's really interesting too. Like if you watch, you know, the Super Bowl in particular. At least uh, depending on the platform, as much as seventy percent of the money being bet on the Super Bowl was placed on the Philadelphia Eagles, which, um, you know, ashes in my mouth, did end up losing one of the best Super Bowls of all time off of bad defense. So uh, that's bad for me and my emotional well-being. I'm never going to get over it. I'm literally still, I can't even think about football right now. But for, you know, sports betting companies, all like a, an enormous amount of money ended up, you know, in those platforms as opposed to getting paid out to the vast majority of um, folks who bet money. When, when you have a disparity like that and the money favorite loses that benefits the platforms right also benefits the people who bet against them but whatever so keep that in mind moving forward as you sort of get eager about looking forward to q1 earnings for a lot of these betting platforms it was the biggest betting super bowl of all time at least in america and um you know it was definitely a win for the platforms really glad we don't have to talk about that anymore though justin so just just rolling right into it so seeing all these winners and losers is great like it's awesome that there are people who are capable of winning in this economy and it's great that a lot of them are sort of like our old school picks we're kind of waiting for pharma to pick back up before we start talking about pharma again q1's always kind of a little bit slow for the pharma industry so again let's get right back into thinking about the macro right we're still kind of concerned i'm getting getting a lot of audience concern about sort of the the environment writ large we want spending and labor to kind of cool down so the fed feels like they don't have to raise rates anymore however retail spending came in in three percent higher than it was than at least should have been right which means people are still spending money but in the same breath Consumer debt has gone up a trillion dollars year over year. Consumer, U.S. consumer debt is now sitting at $16.5 trillion, and defaults are starting to rise. Um, my main question is, like, the most powerful force in this economy is the U.S. consumer. You cannot stop them. They will just keep spending. But are we reaching a limit, Justin, in terms of how much consumer spending can happen in an inflationary environment, or are those concerns kind of overblown? Like, I think it's the main thing we're worried about in terms of the wheels coming off this, right? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an area for concern with U.S. consumer debt hitting $16 trillion. Um, and to your point, it's financed so heavily by by that debt. So consumer spending, it's kind of interesting. On one hand, you know, consumer spending comes out, people are still spending money, the economy is still strong. You would think that's generally a positive sign. However, with people spending more money, you still have these inflationary issues because demand is so high. So even if there's issues on the supply side or the supply side is fine, with demand being so high, prices naturally go up. And so Consumer spending showing the economy strong is normally a good thing, but in this instance, when we're trying to fight inflation, you'd actually want it to fall a little bit in order for inflation to come back down. So ultimately, what the Fed's trying to do is raise rates, slow down uh, the demand side of the equation, and they've shown that, to your point, the U.S. consumer has been pretty resilient, which is, again, it's a little bit of good, a little bit of bad, but ultimately, from an investing point of view, signals that the Fed is likely to un to stop raising rates anytime soon um, if consumer demand stays so high up. And then when we look how it's staying so, so high up, it's because U.S. debt is increasing so much. So it's not necessarily that people have 
excess savings that they're spending. It's that they're tapping into credit, tapping into debt uh, in order in order to finance a lot of their purchases, which which we've seen in the past is a little bit can be catastrophic depending on how high it gets. Um, debt was more of an issue, not from a spending perspective, but from a mortgage perspective, 2007, 2008. And we know how that turned out. Um, so we're, we're seeing kind of this potentially like apocalyptic moment on the good side of the equation, the service side of the equation for U.S. consumers. Yeah, it, it potentially might be a massive issue. And that's that's kind of been what we've been talking about in the economy now for a while is do we have a soft landing? Do we have a hard landing? We know we need to pull back in order for inflation to come back down. Um, but what does it look like? And, you know, this number continuing to go up is definitely not uh, definitely not a good thing. So there's a, a lot of factors to look at. This isn't the only one. We're not going to look at it in isolation. But when we talk about this number in particular, it definitely is a little bit alarming. And it's one of those things, too, audience, where remember, a lot of what's driving this is volatility. Like, you're going to have wild swings in energy prices and some services prices. Like, we can keep relying on used car prices to keep collapsing and Carvana to basically go to less than zero value, right? Um, but we have that's the main thing you really have to keep watching. So if the CPI comes out next month and it's miraculously gone down, you know, two percentage points out of nowhere, that's still no reason to be like, okay, bull run mania is back, baby. Like, game time now, game time wow, because this is going to be a long process of getting us back down to two percent right as you know supply chain issues really start hitting and we finally get back to at the very end of the podcast something you alluded to at the very beginning justin one thing we are watching very closely is the insane amount of investment being put into uh U.S. manufacturing and kind of like native manufacturing all over the world. We're seeing a lot of reshoring happening in Europe, in the U.S., everywhere. $300 billion in investment since 2021, Justin, uh, here in U.S. manufacturing, primarily localized to like the East Coast and the South, like Georgia, North Carolina, West Virginia. Um, you, you mentioned before this is going to maybe cause more prices to go up. Like, What are your thoughts in terms of manufacturing coming back in a big way? Is this going to sort of help the inflation situation as the supply chain keeps being kind of goofy? Or is this going to cause its own problems as prices, you know, rise from a more expensive labor base? Like, how do you how do you parse the reshoring initiative happening right now? And audience, we will have more information on that later this week. If you're listening to the recorded version, when we bring you a new update on our Walkwell automation stock. But I want to get your take there first, Justin. Yes, yeah, so we've talked about this before. Um, so I won't like touch on the the topic itself too much, but effectively this reshoring thing that Peter is alluding to is when more and more companies start to bring their operations on shore. And so you rewind back to kind of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and a lot of companies start to expand globally because they realize they can get cheaper labor in other countries, import goods, and ultimately net effectively much more profitable to do so. And it worked for, you know, decades. And then fast forward to the pandemic and all the goods that we were getting offshore in China, parts of Asia, you know, Mexico, the Middle East. Ultimately, when COVID shut down the supply chains and even reopened them back up, the ability to source these goods became extremely difficult. And that's why we're still seeing these supply side issues where consumers can't get the goods they want because, you know, the U.S. companies that sell that to them source them from areas that are susceptible to shutting down due to COVID-related issues or, or other issues. And so a huge theme we're seeing is a lot of companies bring their operations back on shore. And while it might not be as profitable, ultimately it's more uh, sustainable. Um, there's, you know, the U.S., we, we don't have to rely on other countries um, for sourcing materials, sourcing goods. And yes, may may lead ultimately to to more issues in the short term as we go to rebuild the supply chains but in the long run the thinking is they should be more sustainable but 
again, the issue with this now is it becomes very inflationary. So for example, you know, name a company, um, if they're bringing their operations back on shore, the issue is two things. One, they're completely rebuilding their supply chain, which is expensive and ultimately slows down the production of the goods they want in the short term, although in the long run, it increases it. And then when you start bringing things back on shore, things in the U.S. cost more expensive. So goods, labor, you name it, things are more expensive here. Ultimately, companies aren't going to bear the whole brunt of that. They're going to pass it on to consumers. And then again, more inflationary issues. So this kind of all ties back together. But this onshoring theme is, while necessary for a lot of companies, again, is just leading to more and more inflation as the goods we source become more expensive from the people who produce them. And ultimately, the infrastructure needed to support this is being rebuilt overnight, which again, is very expensive to do. So ultimately, again, when we when we stress that whether it's consumer debt, onshoring, you know, another theme, there's so many inflationary aspects going on right now that the Fed, when they're raising rates, not necessarily are hitting at the core problem of the issue. Yes, they're they're helping, but there's still a lot of underlying issues that unfortunately is kind of out of their control. And that's why you're getting these insane t takes, right, of people calling for a no landing, not a soft landing, not a hard landing, just no landing, just sticky inflation for a decade um, or just like slow inflation for a decade. So you're, you're, you're seeing a lot of these like really complex issues to really start coming to the front because we're watching, you know, rates raises not be effective because you know, frankly, demand was never the issue. It's the supply side of things that has gotten more and more expensive thanks to a catastrophic breakdown in 2020. It gives you an appreciation for how incredible that logistical web was for the, the last decade, right? Because it, it broke, you know, maybe for just a couple of months and it is still being fixed here in 2023. And so that's something we're going to be watching very closely. So we're going to be watching that volatility. We're going to be watching these numbers hopefully keep coming down. We're going to, you know, cling to Jerome Powell's words that the disinflation process has begun. But we're also going to understand that the Fed does not necessarily have the right tools necessary to completely combat this. And there are no tools if you're dealing with supply side inflation and still dealing with it, you know, two years after we started talking about it. So we had one week where we didn't mention Jerome Powell. Sorry, folks, we had to mention him this week. But it's also just really good to keep in mind where we are in this situation. And frankly, it's very exciting to see companies thrive in, these, in this environment and be a stock picking company in, you know, what is essentially the stock picking era. So folks, I hope that you keep sticking with us as we keep examining the numbers and finding the narratives that are going to work for the next five years. That's the main thing you have to do is just stay the course, make sure that you are being very careful where you invest. Don't be like me. Don't panic buy 10, 10 year bonds because it's about to hit 4%. That just feels like easy money. You know, stay the course with your investing plan to make sure that you're investing on a five to 10 year time horizon. And that's still pretty hard to lose even with everything that's going on. With that, Justin, we're very, very much going over on our time to record. So any final thoughts from you, dude? I feel like we managed to cover everything, but again, very complex economic situation we're dealing with right now. Yeah, I think that's a, a good chunk of it. As we've said before, for people who are repeat listening, um, again, no matter what the, <laughs> the headlines tell you or the markets show you, um, we are still very much in the thick of this, not on the other side of things. And so we need to continue to be cautious and invest defensively. We can obviously try and get into names that we think have upside. But again, this isn't a, a full ball market. There's still a lot of underlying issues. Um, and we didn't even talk about Russia, the war there, and you know any geopolitical issues that obviously will throw all of this on its head.
you know, it got brought up a little bit, but again, it's all kind of hinging on exactly what Putin wants to say when he shuts down all of Russia next Thursday to give his big old speech on almost the year anniversary of this absurd conflict. So uh, stick with us till next week, audience, and we, you know, get a better sense of what's happening there. Maybe Putin will capitulate. I mean, he won't, but it would be fun to pretend, right? Um, so we'll see how that all plays <laughs> out. Their current offensive just isn't, you know, gaining the steam it needs to gain. Um, but again, Russia does have a lot more they can throw at Ukraine if they wanted to you sort of like go the full Pyrrhic victory type situation. So we'll see how that all goes. But as always, audience, um, we really appreciate your time being here with us again. Very complex stage of the market. So we appreciate you letting us bounce around the entire economy. Excited to have you all here. Just so you know, audiences podcast is produced, hosted and voiced by me, Peter Starr. Again, if you want to get a better sense of our long term perspective, feel free to join us over at Moby.co slash go. Got some really great articles coming out this week about Disney, about, um, you know, various other aspects of the economy so be sure to check us out there if you be feel free to check us out on tiktok as well as you get more of our day-to-day perspective as well as our instagram otherwise audience if you have any questions you can feel free to email us at hellomobie.co or hit us up in our discord um, which you can find you know basically anywhere on our websites regardless audience we really appreciate your time thank you so much for being here with us and as always we'd like to leave you with peace love and incremental gains everyone be well thank you so much